that again um, because I didn't mention earlier that's Mary Lou, Britton, and Linda Stoneheil. And I uh, just wanted to mention that. So uh, 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 anyone, including Ken Bovenshin, can do that. Um, yes. <laughs> yes, yes it will. Anyway, yes, yes it will. Uh, it was very strange. Um, I, yeah, I, I was over there um, singing like all of you folks and just enjoying worship, and, but I kind of felt like, a, uh, did any of you ever like run track as a kid anywhere along a few of you? One of you? That's it. Lynn is the only, Lynn and I are the only ones ever, I only did it for like two years and I hated it, but because I hate running. Well, for what? Really? I'm going to have to look this up. I got to check. I got to fact check her. I got to fact check her. I don't know. I'm not sure. Anyway, I felt like I felt like I was getting ready to start a track meet. And like those songs, they just couldn't go by fast enough. I was waiting for the gun to fire so we could just like go. Like, ugh, you know, I was just excited. It's, it's exciting to get to, to share with you the word of God. And, and I, I wanted to mention, I didn't mention it last week, but this last week was actually uh, our um, fourth year here. Our four-year anniversary passed this last week. Um, and... As I was reflecting on that and thinking about it and what God had us do from when we got here, God had us start uh, talking about communion. Then he got us in the book of John and we kind of firmly planted ourselves into who Jesus is so we could understand as a body of believers who Jesus was, getting us prepared for what lied ahead. And now we're in a new phase of life within the church. And what are we doing? Well, we're fertilizing the soil once again with who? Jesus, because that's who we should constantly go to for all of our nourishment. Our source of everything is him. And so here we are, right in the middle of, of well, nearing the end, actually, of these teachings on Jesus and specifically things that he taught us and told us to do. And, and this week's message is, is so uh, interesting in how it all fits together um, and how it's just doing its job perfectly. God, God has us in his word where he wants us at the exact moment that he wants us there. And it's an incredible thing to think about. And so hopefully you like me can look at these texts and go, ah, yeah, I see where God's challenging us, us, a body of believers here at Berea with these texts. Now, I mentioned this last week that, that I knew this would happen somewhere along the way in the book of Luke, that we would come to a point because, because Luke constantly, he shares so much from the life of Jesus that there's these points where it looks like he's like, um, okay, I interviewed all these people and I've got this left over. Where can I throw it in? Like, how about here and here and here and here and here and here? Um, and so we don't know if these are all part of the same conversation. We don't know if there's a gap, um, if it's a different city. We, we just don't know for sure. We can compare some of it with Mark and Matthew and, and their order and, and kind of see some of these things, yes, fit together. And some of them seem to be just, just add-ins. So this week is, is a bit of a casserole, if you will, of Jesus's teachings, Luke's quickly going to shift from one topic to the other that may not seem like they have a lot to do. We'll see if that's the case at the end. Let's all remember Luke's purpose to write us an orderly account from these eyewitness and these other firsthand followers, firsthand information from the scene from Jesus. He gathered an unknown amount of information from an unknown number of people. And he had that task of putting it all together in an orderly function for a man named Theophilus and for us to help us be certain certain of the things that we've been taught, certain of the things we believe and or if we don't believe yet, to convince us too 
believe one day. So here we go. We have one last passage to wrap up from last week. If you are a little bit OCD, um, it really bothered you that I left one verse out, one verse from the chapter last week. And that was because quite honestly, it just didn't fit in with the rest of the topic. But I promise not to skip anything. And so we will cover that first. Uh, my uncle uh, was here last week and he was on me after. Why, it, what, why didn't you? Watch next week, man. I'm sorry. Um, so Mark, if you're watching, um, we're, we're on first. Oh, yeah. Yes, and Steve Burns. I'm going to say hi to Steve. Steve Burns has COVID, and so hi, Steve Burns. Everybody, if you could see the kid. Hi, Steve. Yeah, um, he's, he's watching this on, online at home. We can do that, right? Why not? Like, it, yeah, it's great. So we're in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 16 is where we're at to start today. All right? Jesus said, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing and everyone is um, forcing their way into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of the pen to drop out of the law. Verse 18. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And a man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Um, that's a hard teaching, isn't it? <laughs> that's a hard teaching for Jesus' day, and I don't think it's any less difficult for us today. Jesus is picking out a very specific example of how the current religious leaders during his times had a misunderstanding of the law of Moses and its application to the people. Now, we don't know if this was an intentional misunderstanding of the law because, well, that would be way easier, or if it was an accidental. We, we don't know for sure. What we do know is that Jesus is calling them out as to some aspect of how they are handling this portion of the law. Now, here's the thing. If you've not had the opportunity in your lifetime to study the full counsel, the, the whole word of God, then it is very, very possible that you've never heard those words from Jesus before. And as a result, you hear them, you're like, oh, wait, but I'm, yeah. Um, in our world today, uh, this world that we live in of, of no-fault divorce, uh, anybody can get divorced for any reason, and that makes divorce at this point just as normal as marriage, right? So before we continue, let's address that issue. I want to remind you that divorce is not an unforgivable sin, but it is a sin. Just because it's legal doesn't mean that it's not a sin. I think we have an understanding of that in our culture anyway. In order to best understand this teaching, we need to very briefly look at the other moments where Jesus touched on this topic, okay? Because it is that important, and he does specify some things. He very first speaks about divorce in his most famous sermon ever recorded. That's called the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, he begins with that famous passage on adultery that many of you have heard. He said, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone that look, looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And Jesus immediately follows that with this, verse 31, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That was the law of Moses. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery adultery. So obviously this was an issue within their culture. It was obviously a male-dominated culture, so this would have been a primarily male issue. 
an issue that the religious leaders of the day were not handling properly. So Jesus wants to correct their thinking. He wants to lead their hearts closer to the heart of God. Later in Jesus' ministry, someone specifically asks him, the religious leaders ask him a question about divorce. It's in Matthew 19, verse 3. So some Pharisees came to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Hence the culture we have today. Haven't you read? He replied at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate why then, the Pharisees asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you, it's a difference there, to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not that way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another woman commits adultery. And I love, as I was reading that again and writing on this, I thought, yeah, I mean, like Adam and Eve were married for like 900 years, you know? I mean... That's a while, right? And anyway, I share all of that with you to sum it up this way. Jesus affirms the law time and time again. That's what that passage in verse 16 says. Not the least stroke of the pen of the law has gone anywhere. Jesus just came to fulfill it. And then he emphasizes that marriage is a gift from God. It has been from the beginning. It's a relationship that many of us, not everyone, many of us were absolutely created for. The covenant relationship that is to make up a marriage mirrors the covenant between God and man, and it is not meant to be entered into lightly nor left lightly. Jesus does authorize that covenant to be dissolved on very specific purposes and for very specific reasons. He does allow for that. Obviously, there is a point where that kind of thing could be necessary. However, he doesn't say that it has to dissolve. It's not an absolute what we must remember is that divorce is a result of sin in this world. And most of the time, divorce is caused by a sin that was committed by one of the parties and or both within the marriage. Satan is at the root of this issue, not you. Keep that in mind. And the reality is we know some of you watching, listening in the room today have been there. You've dealt with this issue we could spend a lot more time, and the next time we do a relationship series, we will devote a Sunday to this topic for sure. But please, 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 please know this. Jesus absolutely welcomed divorced people into his ministry when he was walking this earth. You see, he, his blood covers all of our sins. And so if divorce is part of your life story, guess what? Jesus knows that. And he willingly will forgive you, have you asked? Further, if divorce has been a part of your story, have you forgiven yourself? Because you must. Have you forgiven and or asked for forgiveness from the other person that was a part of that relationship? You see, that piece of restoration is essential for us if we are a believer, if we call ourselves a believer. It is essential for us as we move forward and we become the person that God desires for us to be. It's essential, but it's beyond essential. It's actually not optional. We don't have a choice whether to forgive or to not forgive. We must. And here's the awesome and terrible thing at the same time. If you need help in this area, 
please, please, please join us today. Don't wait till next service. Don't wait till next week. Join us today up front or in that prayer room because for whatever reason, God has allowed people within our facility here to experience this very issue. There are many people in here that have experienced this very issue and God alone has helped bring them through. And they have wisdom and they have love and they have compassion for your situation and they can minister directly to you. He actually prepared them for this moment to minister to you. And so if this teaching comes across to you personally as a very hard teaching of Jesus, because it is in our culture, it absolutely is, know that God has prepared the hearts and minds of some people within this room that have been through this, probably some of them a very long time ago, and God has brought them all the way through it at this point, and they are ready and willing and able to help you right now to deal with this, because it's not easy. It's never the way God intended. It's what we man have done to this relationship. I had to let that stand alone this week. I couldn't just throw it in the middle last week. I hope you understand. It's too important. God loves you too much. We as the church love you too much to just let this pass by and ignore it. We need to talk about it. We need to work through it. We need to love you through these issues in life. They're real, and we know it. So keep that in mind, all right? On to chapter 17. On to chapter 17. It says that as Jesus is addressing the big crowds and the questions from the religious leaders, he then turns, and I literally envision him, big crowd disciples doing this, and just starts teaching to them. The problem is we don't really know whether it was just them or was everybody else still around? Were all the religious leaders still there? Did Jesus speak loud enough so that everyone could hear, or was he just talking literally to those 12. The key for us for this text is we have to understand who Jesus is talking to. He is not talking to the masses. He is talking to his followers, those closest to him. So these next two teachings that we're going to talk about are directed to the disciples, right to their face. They're for them. Verse 1 of chapter 17, he says to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. Remember, Jesus is talking to believers. I'm going to keep emphasizing that throughout these passages. Here, Jesus reminds us that there's always going to be opportunities to sin. Really, Jesus? Are you sure? I know those have all gone away in 2022. There's no chance for me to sin. I don't know what you're talking about. Maybe you would agree that, yeah, plenty of opportunities. So we're going to continue to encounter these things throughout our entire lives. But as believers, here's the key, as believers, we must never do anything that causes another believer to sin. That's who he's talking to, believers. Jesus' reference here to little children is not actually talking about little, physical, tiny, little children. He's talking about his children. He always calls us his children. These are babies, infants in the faith. Christianity hadn't even officially been born yet. Jesus is just now reaching people. So he's telling his disciples, watch yourself, because all these people that are starting to follow me, that we're teaching, that we're loving, if you do something that causes them to sin, it would be better that you immediately be executed right now in a terrible way, mind you then we're going to continue to lead these people in to sin. Believers, this is for us. 
This is for us. You and I, we need to evaluate our lives and we need to look and ask ourselves, are we leading people closer to Christ through our actions, our words, our deeds, whatever? Or is there something in our life that could potentially push them away from Christ? Is there an activity that we participate in? Is there a behavior that we have? Is there an attitude that we convey that could cause someone else to sin? Here's the biggest kicker. It might not have any effect whatsoever on you and the way you live your life for Christ. It may not have any impact on how you do anything, but it could lead someone else down the wrong path. Jesus is telling us if there's even a potential, if there's even a potential of this, then Jesus is saying, get rid of it. Now, Paul, the author of many books in the New Testament, the greatest missionary maybe to walk the earth, is our model for this. He writes at length about this issue in 1 Corinthians, and he subs it up in 1 Corinthians 8, 13 this way. If whatever I eat causes my brother or sister to fall in sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. He is specifically referencing meat sacrifice to idols, okay? But you'll notice he says, I'll never eat meat again, not meat sacrificed to idols. So keep that in mind. I want you to think about it in our context. If whatever I fill in the blank causes someone else to sin, then I will never fill in the blank again. Are you willing to do that? Church believers is who we're talking to here. We all sin. We are all in need of forgiveness. None of us are perfect But if I know something that could possibly cause a brother or sister in Christ to stumble, or if someone else has pointed out to me something in my life that might cause a brother or sister to stumble, if I'm guilty, if I feel guilty, if I feel convicted or bad about partaking in something that could possibly lead someone to sin, then I need to stop it. Is there something that you're involved in in your life that's divisive? amongst believers? If so, it needs to go away. Is there something in your life that causes confusion? If someone were coming to Christ and you were participating in this activity and it confused them, how could you be a Christian and do or think or act? Then I need to change. But here's the biggest kicker. Here's the biggest one. How about this? Something I am unwilling to stop or some activity that I'm unwilling to quit doing because honestly, I don't care what people think about me. Have you ever said that? If that's you, then you know exactly what God's getting at with this passage, don't you? It's called pride. And you're taking an object, you're taking an event, you're taking an activity, you're taking a behavior, you're taking an attitude, and you're holding it up above God, and you're saying, you know, God, I don't really care how people think or respond to this. It doesn't matter if it keeps someone from Christ. It doesn't matter if it leads someone to Christ. Now, that sounds terrible. Who would have that kind of attitude, right? I think that's why Jesus' punishment is so severe. Immediate execution. <laughs> if, if you're guilty of these things, it would be better for you to just die than to continue leading people astray. It's kind of crazy, and that is very, very serious stuff. This, believers, are how we are to treat one another. We are to help them be faithful disciples. This is how we are to love one another enough for us willingly to give up anything that might hinder their spiritual growth. Are you willing to do that? Ready to grow? Are we ready to grow? Are we ready to lay these things behind us that might prevent someone else from growing? 
He moves on. He continues to challenge the disciples. This is all one continuous lesson for them and for us. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times they come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. This is an absolutely essential part of our faith. We have to make it a point, A, not to lead them into sin. That was the last passage. Then we have to keep each other from sinning. We point it out. Yes, we actually point it out when they're in error. We're not talking about pre-believers here. We're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus is talking to disciples. If we see one another sinning, we got to call them on it. This is a form of love. This is not self-righteous judgment. Jesus warns us elsewhere about that plank in our own eye. So you and I have to have lives of moral integrity. So we can go to someone that is caught in sin and we can rebuke them. We can talk to them about what it is that they're doing. We're to hold one another accountable. Jesus commands us to. Then he takes it a step further. And oh, when you hold them accountable, if they repent, forgive them. Again, we don't have the option to forgive them or not. If someone asks for forgiveness, you are absolutely obligated to offer it. He uses some numbers with the number seven elsewhere. He uses even bigger numbers. The number isn't what matters. The point is simple. If they ask you, forgive. Just as God forgives each and every one of us every time we ask. Now it appears, again, this is all one continuous conversation. So Jesus drops these two teachings on his disciples and they kind of scratch their heads and immediately it says they respond with this. The apostles said to Jesus, uh, increase our faith. Jesus, that's going to be hard. Um, I don't want to give these things up. I mean, I like these things. I'm fine. You picked me, right? Why can't I continue to do them? Well, because they might leave someone else to sin. So you got to stop. You got to stop doing this. Yeah, but they sinned against me. I don't want to forget. Ah, you don't care if you want to. It doesn't really matter. You've got to do this. Increase our faith. You can't do it on your own, though. And he wants them to realize that, them to admit that, and they do. Jesus, we can't do this. Can you help us? You got to help us. If this is how you want us to treat each other, man, you got to help us. Because right now, I don't even like John. He's bugging the crap out of me. Peter, get away from me, Peter. I mean, you can imagine the thoughts they're thinking. So Jesus replies, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted by the sea and it will obey you. The disciples would have been thinking, but I thought we had to have this tremendous, huge, mountain-sized faith. Their request, not unreasonable. Jesus, increase our faith as followers, right? All of us should want our faith to be growing. That's not an improper request of Jesus at all. But Jesus confronts them with the reality that seems completely impossible. He says that if we have even just the tiniest amount of faith, then we can accomplish great, even impossible things in his power. That is a truth that you and I individually need to embrace. And then we need to embrace that truth as a body of believers as well, realizing that only God can accomplish the impossible tasks that he lays before us. We must trust in him. Through our small faith, because humanity is only capable of small faith, really, it's true. Our small faith in this magnificent God allows this to be possible. It allows us to do more things, anything that we can possibly imagine and beyond, no matter how big we think it is. If it's part of God's plan and we have our faith in him, it's going to happen. Don't be overwhelmed by the earthly size of an obstacle. God can overcome it. 
Don't be afraid of the mountain. It can be moved, although sometimes it won't be. And what must we do to that mountain? Got to climb it. And that's okay too. That's okay too. Jesus is actually using these passages as an encouragement, strikingly enough, to his disciples, his apostles, and to you and to me today, saying that we already have faith. Many of you have already come to faith. Now it's just time to put it into action. Ephesians 3, 20, one of our family faces, favorite verses. It's actually on the wall in our kitchen. 3, 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And then he continues on. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to that servant when he comes in from the field, come along now, sit down and eat? Won't he rather say, hey, uh, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. And after that, then you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told, you should say, we are only unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Church, you and I, we are servants of the most high God. We serve with no strings attached. We serve out of love and devotion to him. We serve because what he has already done for us, what he is currently doing in our lives now, and what we believe, what he has promised he will do into all of eternity. We serve him because it's our duty to do just that. Just like the servant in this parable. We don't have the right to pick and choose when we do or when we don't obey God. We are to respond to him, not bargain with him. So here's another thing that is completely, completely awesome about our God. Even though God owes us nothing, God does honor faithful service. God rewards those who serve without the thought of being rewarded. Selfless, humble servants are rewarded in this life as well as the next. Do you realize that? Part of our burden to bear in this life is the selfless service that we are to have toward our God. So how does that look? How do we serve our God? Well, we serve, we honor him through worship. Have you experienced that gift that he gives you? Has God ever filled you up when you genuinely lay everything down before him to worship? I bet many of you have. How about through your prayer life? When you connect with God on a deeper level, does he then connect on a deeper level with you when you're serving him faithfully through your conversations with him? How about through generosity, through giving? Does God reward you with joy and with peace and many times even abundance when you give with a grateful heart? How about through evangelism? through reaching out to those around you with the love of Jesus. Have you ever felt that? Has someone you know ever come to Christ and you felt yourself being a part of that experience as you helped lead them in that direction? It is incredible. Our service is out of duty to our Lord, and yet look how he immediately gives us even greater joy when we're faithfully submitting to him. Have you experienced that joy in your life? Because if not, it's waiting for you now. We are all called to serve. I always imagined, 
as a youth minister, what it would be like if like your entire ministry got to go and serve together. I always imagine what that would be like. And then eventually it happened. And our entire senior high ministry would go on mission trips. And I literally mean everyone said maybe one or two people. You were the odd person out if you didn't go to serve. And money was never an object. It was never, God provided everything. And then I began to rationalize in my adult mind now. Well, we were with a group of adults. And so expecting everyone that meets on a Sunday morning, everyone that joins us online, everybody that's only able to be here some weeks because of work or work, for all of those people, for every single one of those people to serve Christ in some capacity, that, that's never going to happen. Why? It's who we're called to be. That's not an option for us. We're all called to serve. And so I ask, how are you serving your Lord today? It doesn't have to be in this building. That's not what I'm talking about. What if all of us were committed to that service in some way, shape, or form? Because we all should be. It's not an option. It's out of duty. It's out of love and respect for him and what he's done for us. It's an incredible challenge. Yes, as an adult, practically, I should think, oh, it will never. If we could just get 60% of people serving, that'd be. No, Jesus says that sucks. 100%. I'm sorry. I don't know if he would use that terminology, but I think he might in 2022. 100%. What did he give for us? Did he give 80%? Did he give 90%? Did he give 99%? No, no, no. He gave 100% for us. Why should we give any less, right? Why should we give any less? Are we ready to grow? We have two more short parables to just wrap things up today, and they're very short. I told you today was going to be this odd combination of things. So so go ahead and flip to chapter 18, because there's probably a, a, a miracle in there that we've already taught on that we'll skip ahead of. The short parable about the power of persistent prayer. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them the way they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. You can just imagine this woman every single day at the doorstep of this old, grumpy, irritable man. For some time he refused, but he finally said to himself, you know what, (laughs) even though I don't care about God, I don't care about people, but because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't come back and attack me anymore. Get rid of the old nag is what the judge is saying here, okay? And then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? They pray believing, but will people believe in Jesus when he's here? Simply, Jesus says, we should pray and don't quit. Now, many of you in life have experienced how difficult that can be. To never give up, even when the world is stacked against you, even when the person you're praying for just continues to head in the wrong direction. This woman had no power, no influence, no chance of ever getting justice on her own. She needed the judge to be on her side. So she fully relied on God to influence the judge, to change his heart. How often is that the case in the world we live in now? We just had one of those answers to prayer, did we not, in our country What we are praying for may seem unrealistic, it may seem impossible in the eyes of the world, but we have seen God move 
in ways that use the things of this world even to accomplish his purposes. Have you seen that in your personal life? Many of you have. Have you shared that with anyone? And talking with Lynn, one of the problems with our prayer lives is we don't thank God enough. I'll give you a perfect example. We get dozens of prayer requests in the office and we send those out via email. You know how many times we hear back on God answering those prayers? Almost never. We don't thank God for what he does. We, we don't get, offer that back to him. We just pray once or twice and we, we move on. Church, we need to share the ways in which God answers our prayers. We need to see God moving in each other's lives. We need to hear about that. It is encouraging. If you are praying desperately for someone and it's just not, God's just not leading that direction right away, but you can be converse, conversing with someone that God is answering their prayers, it is an encouragement to you. And we need to share those things. We need to see how God is moving in the people around us. We need to see how real God truly is. Let's be honest. We need to share when we're struggling. We need to share when we're struggling with our prayer lives. We need other people to join us in those struggles and be looking for us because we might be so focused, so narrowly focused on the answer we're seeking that we don't notice that God's answering the prayer all around us. And someone else might notice that and be able to show us how God is actually answering our prayers, even though it's not what we want. Sometimes our focus is just too narrow, and we need others to help us open our mind. God knows that we might lose heart and quit praying. That's why this parable is here. God is not an evil, self-centered judge like in this story. Jesus added that literally for humor. He added that for humor's sake. If this widow can get, a ju get justice from this old, evil, disheartened judge, then how much more will the caring, loving, tender, gracious, heavenly father hear and answer his own children when we cry out for help? <laughs> You've probably heard it said, God answers prayer one of three ways, right? He says yes, he says no, or he says the least favorite, not yet. Hold on, Wait. That's like everyone's arch enemy. Ah, but I want it now because that's the world. Sometimes he seems slow. It's true. And his response is we think of slowness. Sometimes we know he doesn't give us the answer that, he, that we want. But he will always answer us according to his will. Our God is fully trustworthy. He is gracious. He is compassionate. And he alone knows what's best for every situation. Our role is to ask in faith, to pray believing that he will answer and then willingly accept whatever his response may be. So keep on praying. Just like so many of these parables, that one deserves its own week, if you will, as well. But remember, Luke's intent is to help the reader be certain of what we believe, how to pray, when to pray, why to pray. Those are all lessons that we should be learning ongoing as we cover these passages together. So this last parable here, again, casserole today, this is the order that Luke has them in. Very short. And Jesus, it's about prayer once again, but Jesus does not make any friends at all with this short, short parable. Luke addresses it this way. He says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood all by himself, and he prayed, God, thank you that I am not like other people, 
Thank you, I'm not a robber, I'm not an evildoer, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not even like that tax collector standing right over there. You know what, I even fast twice a week and I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, hopefully you heard the description of who Luke was, or who Jesus was preaching to, if you will, in that moment. Some who were confident of their own righteousness, and they looked down on everyone else. Yeah, ouch. Yes, that would have hurt. Jesus looked around at those listening, and he thought, you know, I've got a good one for you guys. Let's just see if you can figure out who you are in the story. We kind of do that every week, don't we? When we open the word of God, we look for, okay, God, how are you speaking to me through this? And he has a way of revealing himself to us through those things. Let's see if you guys can figure out who it is that I'm talking about. Can you tell if you're one of these self-righteous people? Now, the first thing he does is he sets everybody up to fail in their answer to his question. Because he brings in two characters, a Pharisee and a tax collector, neither of which were the favorite of everyone there, mind you. But he pitted these two sides against each other, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the good guy versus the bad guy. Well, which is which? Self-righteous versus just simply evil. The backstabbing Jewish traitor versus the religious leader. Everyone listening would have felt the tension in Jesus' statement, and their reaction probably would have been instantaneous. And so then Jesus unloads. He continues. He's speaking about prayer. He exposes how the religious leaders look down on everyone because everyone is beneath them. He literally is thanking God for himself. And their prayers, they, they tried to distance themselves from such people. They had no heart for the lost whatsoever. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And then Jesus shows how the religious people feel about themselves, proud of how great they are at obeying God. In fact, he does even more than required. What a relief that he's not like all of these sinners. Literally, his prayer kind of finishes up with, Jesus, you know, God, thank you that I am so great. That's basically what he's saying. Now, before we get too far ahead here, um, it's real easy for us to meet, for us to gather and look at everyone else out there. And Well, at least I'm not like... I once was lost, but now I'm found. They're still lost. We need to look at them differently. They're all pre-believers, not non-believers. We got to change that vocabulary in our minds. So Jesus compares the Pharisee's prayer to that of a tax collector who willingly and humbly admits that he is a complete and total worthless human being, a complete and total failure. He believes he can't do anything right. He knows his rightful place before God and had his only hope is through God's forgiveness. He cannot earn anything from God. He is completely and totally reliant upon the mercy and the grace of God. He could not do enough good deeds to save his life, no matter what. God have mercy on me, a sinner. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And it says the tax collector goes home justified. The tax collector goes home righteous before God. Why? How? Because God looked at him and he imparted. He gave his righteousness to this man. He alone justified this man. He sought God's forgiveness and he fully received it. Now, here's the thing. I am not a part of too many of your personal prayer lives, right? 
But I doubt there are too many of you that probably bow before God on a daily basis and remind God of how good you are. I could be wrong, and if I am, then probably God's speaking to you through this parable, all right? But we'll just go ahead and and skip ahead to the other side. I doubt too many of us fall on our face daily to admit what a wretched, awful, terrible sinner that we are truly either. Do we beg for forgiveness like that tax collector because it truly is our only hope? My guess is probably all of us lie somewhere in the middle. See if this sounds familiar. We don't really want to bother God with our problems because you know what? We can handle them, right? We don't really want to confess all our sins because, you know, they're not that bad, are they? We're not always persistent in our prayers for even other people because God already knows, right? Not desiring more faith. Why wouldn't we pray or ask for more faith like the disciples? Well, because... um. If we ask for that, then God's going to give us more ways to be faithful. It's just like that prayer for patience that no one will pray for because we don't want God to put us in situations. It's no different with faith. If we ask God for more faith, he'll say, okay, here's some situations. Let's see if you're faithful in them. It's no different. Not working on a relationship because you know what? It's their fault, isn't it? Only serving and doing the bare minimum out of duty to God just so maybe he'll show me some favor. Unwilling to leave behind worldly things that might stunt or even prevent the spiritual growth of others because we live in a free country and I'm an American, I can do whatever I want. I have freedom in Christ. No, you don't. Not to sin or to lead the people into sin. You don't have freedom in those areas for sure. You know, maybe all of these seemingly completely unrelated passages that I just summed up in two sentences actually go together quite well don't they? And maybe all of us are a little bit more like that Pharisee in that very final parable than we care to admit. I know we covered a very broad range of things today, and what's beautiful about God is everyone listening, one of those situations got to you. One of those things that Jesus taught on that Jesus said was for you. He's the one that put all these things together for us, and so now it's a matter Will you respond? And you might say, I don't even know what that looks like, Pastor. I go to an independent Christian church. We don't react. We don't respond. We just sit and stare at the person on stage. (laughs) Truth, right? (laughs) The Spirit will move when the Spirit moves. And it's our role to respond how He asks us to respond. That's why I don't tell you what to do. You know, you've been places where you need to do this. You You need to listen to the Spirit. That's what you need to do, whatever that means. So if you're struggling as a result of a divorce or a situation right now or the past, we've got people, I'm telling you, we've got people, I know some of their stories that have been through those things and they don't love that they went through them, but they're so thankful for the God who brought them through and they would love to share with you their experience and how they can help you. If you're struggling to put something down that maybe isn't an issue for you, But it could be an issue for someone else, especially a new believer or someone you're trying to lead to Christ and you're struggling to lay that down. That's why we're here. If your challenge is to serve, if your challenge is to give, if your challenge is your prayer life, whatever it is, don't miss the opportunity. Allow the Spirit to speak to you today. Spend some time with God. Here in a second, you're getting a chance to respond immediately via via communion. And we're supposed to come before God with a clean slate. Everything having been asked for for forgiveness, for forgiving others before we even partake of that supper. And so there's a challenge for us all today. 
Don't miss that. Father God, as we come before you, I, I don't know why I'm such an excitable person. It's the way you made me. And as our staff prayer beforehand took place, my prayer was that this type of excitement, this type of enthusiasm, this type of joy for you and your body and your, your family of believers here, this type of joy to reach out to others, to seek and save the lost, will be contagious. And that others will feel that energy. Father, we all get beat up in life. Life is hard. You never promised it would be easy. But you always promised to be with us. If we rely on ourselves for our energy, if we rely just on our sleep for energy, our calorie intake for energy, then all of those things will ultimately fail us. Father, we must trust in you for everything. And so, Father, we trust in you now, in your spirit to move amongst your people as you would have him move. What a beautiful thing. These teachings are as hard as some of them may be. They guide, they direct us, they inspire us, they encourage us. And they challenge us. Let us be challenged today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you guys would get your communion cups out, we'll, we'll take it together.